For those that don't know, can you explain what safeguarding is and why it is necessary? Yeah, of course. So um, safeguarding is basically a process of keeping vulnerable children, young people and adults safe from uh, abuse and harm. Um, so the key principles of safeguarding are firstly to identify risk and then to understand what are the potential consequences of that risk not being responded to and then putting a response in place to reduce that risk that you've identified. And I think it's really important to say that safeguarding is everybody's responsibility and not just those that are working in professions where you've got a legal responsibility to safeguard people. So regardless of whether you are working in a professional capacity or not, we've all got a moral and social duty to do our bit to enable everybody in our communities to live lives free from um, harm and abuse. Uh, so, so in practice then, with regards to the recent update um, regarding the statutory guidance as of 2018, are there any noticeable changes that those who work with young people need to be made aware of? Yeah, definitely. So um, in 2018, like you say, Ashley, there was some changes made to uh, statutory guidance. So both to working together to safeguard children and uh, keeping children safe in education. And both of those um, documents now reference something called contextual safeguarding. So what I find is that a lot of people are aware of what the term contextual safeguarding is but maybe are less aware of what that means in practice. So just to explain what contextual safeguarding means, it's an approach which focuses on uh, risk and vulnerability, which is encountered by young people outside of their family environments. Um, I think it's one of the most significant developments for the safeguarding sector in recent years. And what it does is it recognises and identifies the current limitations of the child protection systems that we've got in place in the UK at the moment, which are primarily designed to protect children from abuse within the family home. Um, and that isn't to say that the current child protection systems are wrong, because what we know is that risk to children and young people often does occur in, in uh, the family home, predominantly in early years, but also in adolescence. Um, however, that, that there's got to be, particularly if we're ever really going to understand and recognise exploitation, there has to be a recognition of how vulnerability and risk changes as a child reaches adolescence and therefore spends more time outside of the family home. Right. So adolescence is a time when young people start to spend more time away from their family environments and independently from their parents and carers so for example you know at the age of 11 children transition from their primary to secondary schools and this means that for them they are often independently navigating new social contexts such as bigger schools they might travel independently for the first time to school um, using buses or trains without parental supervision and they often form their new peer networks and I think those peer networks become increasingly important as, as you become an adolescent um, and you spend more time like parents um, with those peer networks in social spaces like parks shopping centres for example um, so yeah I think that, that for a lot of young people 
adolescence is a really exciting time and they enjoy that these newfound freedoms without incident, um, particularly if they have the benefit of secure nurturing attachments at home. Um, but, you know, in those settings, because they're out of um, the supervision of their parents, this is a time really where they may experience abuse, so peer-on-peer -peer abuse, for example, or serious youth violence. And therefore, it's really important, and this is what contextual safeguarding highlights, is that it's important that we have systems in place which recognise this, which recognise that abuse may occur outside of the home, not just within the home, and um, is able to respond to that and recognise that um, and identify that risk. That makes sense. So why has the current statutory guidance regarding safeguarding been updated? I think that the reason really that underpins the update is that there's been a much greater recognition of the need to widen the lens to recognise that harm and abuse and exploitation does occur outside of the family environment. Um, and that there is a need then for multi-agency contextual responses to keep children and young people safe. Um, so that, that's the main reason I think for those changes. You know, if we look at exploitation, if we look at serious youth violence, where they happen, the context in which they happen, if we focus all of our effort on looking at the family and putting interventions around parents and carers, that's not going to work because actually the risk is outside of the family home. Um, often many miles away from the family home, you know, if we're thinking about young people who are being exploited through the county lines model and might be going into other local authority areas, um, that, that's even more reason to, to look at contextual approaches to safeguard them because those approaches within the home just isn't going to work for that young person. And I think as well anecdotally, what I've found over the years is that a lot of parents and carers who are concerned about their children, they will go and they will ask for help and they will be sent on a parenting course and that they interpret that support as um, them being deemed as bad parents that have got no control over their children and young people. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know what, the, the, the adverse consequence of that is that we need parents and carers to raise the alarm and to raise the flag if they've got those concerns. But I think if they feel that the finger is going to be pointed at them, that that discourages them from doing so. Um, so I, I think that that is the main reason for the changes to the guidance. I think contextual safeguarding for me as professional is a real light bulb moment. But I think it's really important to say that it's really important that we don't shift our focus from risk in the family to risk outside of the family, um, because sometimes they go hand in hand. You know, you might have a child who actually they're spending more time out of the family home because their family environment isn't a nice place to be. Um, so, yeah, I think it's very much about widening our lens, being professionally curious, thinking about both family risk and um you know, extra familial risk, not just looking at one or the other, if that makes sense. I agree. I agree. There's, um, you mentioned about county lines and there's a lot of um, yeah. news 
going on about that. Can you explain to those who don't know what County Lines is? Yeah, you're right, Ashley. There's been a lot in the press, I think, about County Lines. And um, one thing I would say is that when we talk about County Lines, we're essentially talking about exploitation and child abuse. Um, so a, a County Line, I think the easiest way to explain this is it's essentially a dedicated phone line um, that's used for the purposes of dealing drugs. Um, so the county line business model came about because drug markets in the big cities, so London, Birmingham, Manchester, they were becoming really saturated and um, competitive. But it was recognised that in coastal towns and more geographical and rurally isolated areas, that the demand for drugs was still there, um, but supply networks were far less established. And this really presented organised criminal networks and, and gangs with an opportunity to establish drug markets in these areas um, because there was less competition. And what that meant was that they could charge much more for the drugs that they supply and therefore that really inflated their profit margins. Um, so where do children come into that? So children and young people, they are often recruited to traffic drugs as part of the county line business model. Um, so they will be typically given the drugs in a city, which really is like an urban nucleus where it all starts. And they will be tasked with trafficking those drugs um, to rural and coastal areas um, to sell them. And that, that's where the term county lines came from. They're essentially um, trafficking drugs. County line, obviously, the, the phone lines and they're given phones. So, um, you know, they, they get a text to say where they need to be, they will go. Usually, um, they will go outside of the area where they originate from to, to traffic those drugs. Um, and then they might traffic money back in to, um, you know, the area that they're, they're basically operating from. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really risky, obviously, to them you know, serious youth violence because of the competitive nature of gangs. Um, also the way that they traffic drugs as well. Um, but children are, are really easy to recruit in a lot of ways because, yeah, they're, 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 they're kind of pulled into it for a variety of different factors. You know, um, Financially, they might come from quite an economically deprived background and they see it as a way of making money, which is a real game changer for a lot of young people. Mm. Well, why in your experience would you describe this as a form of exploitation? And the reason why I say that is because um, the money that can come from drugs, uh, as well as maybe the expensive clothing they might get or trainings they get given, um, or they or they can use to buy with the money they get. Um, for a lot of people who may be unfamiliar to what what goes on behind the scenes, that could seem like a, a blessing. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, I think you're right. I think a lot of young people, and that's why I say, you know, when we're talking about county lines, we're basically talking about child abuse, and we're talking about exploitation of children. But you're right. I think some people will see it as a choice it might outwardly look like they've made a choice to live that lifestyle. Um, but yeah, I mean, to, to spot the signs really of exploitation and to really understand how exploitation works, 
I think that we need to have a, a basic understanding of manipulation, coercion, deception and control, because that's how young people become involved in county lines. Um, that's how young people are exploited. Um, so, you know, gangs and organised criminal networks, first of all, they identify vulnerability and they recognise that they can exploit that vulnerability um, for their own gains. So, you know, like I said earlier, really a lot of young people, but not all young people, but a lot of young people who are exploited are economically disadvantaged. That is a massive um, pull factor for young people, the money. Um, like I say, real game changer. If they've grown up in poverty and all of a sudden they've got hundreds of pounds a week in their back pocket, that's, that's really attractive. And, and of course it would be. And I think as well, if you've got a young person who is not attending school, not attaining educationally, not getting their exams, what is the likelihood of them ever being able to earn that money legitimately? Mm. Um, so you can see from their perspective how it's really attractive and that's where it might seem like they've got a choice but we absolutely need to recognise and remember that there will be vulnerability there what is that vulnerability and how has that been exploited um, you know there's other young people as well I mean we've got what about 4.2 million young people in this country who are living in poverty and because of COVID, I think that's only ever going to increase um, as more families find themselves out of work. Um, so there's some, some young people, we talk about trainers and expensive clothing and the pull factor of that, but I think there's a lot of young people who will be using money that they earn um, through county lines activity to pay family bills. Mm. And so, you know, the pressure on them to contribute to to their family's finances as well. Um, and that makes the situation and identification of exploitation even more complex, I think, if, if they're kind of finding themselves in that situation. Um, and it can be hard for them as well themselves as a victim to identify that they have been manipulated. Now, if you take a young person who maybe hasn't had a particularly stable peer network or hasn't got those secure nurturing attachments with their significant adults and caregivers, they might feel as being part of a gang or affiliated with a gang for the first time in their lives part of something and important to somebody. Um, and that makes it really complex for them to identify themselves as victims. So a lot of people say, you know what, if this young person is being exploited, being abused, why are they not saying anything? Mm. And that can be the reason why. It can be that they don't identify themselves as a victim. Or it might be that they're too fearful to speak out as well. In your experience, uh, what sort of conditions are young people subjected to? Um, yeah, um, like I say, going back to my point of this is exploitation and this is abuse. So the conditions that young people are subjected to are quite horrific a lot of the time. Maybe not initially, because that's part of the manipulation, the coercion, the control. Like I say, they might feel respected. They might feel um, important. They might be made to feel special. 
Um, and, and they might be feelings that they've craved and never experienced before. Um, as they get more entrenched in exploitation and criminality and the abuse starts, then I think that what they find themselves is feeling fear. You know, those, those positive feelings that they might have felt initially are replaced with, by feelings of, of fear, um, desperation, because they just can't see a way out. They can't see a way to escape. Mm. They might want to speak out, but they're concerned that not only they might be injured or subject to violence, but actually their families might be too. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, going back to what I was saying about how county lines models operate and how children and young people are used to traffic drugs and money, you know, the, the way that they traffic drugs and money as well to evade detection from the police, because that's the main aim of organised criminal networks is to go into the radar and to avoid detection. So they will be expected to conceal drugs and large quantities of cash inside their bodies rather than, you know, in their coat pockets or whatever. So if they are stopped and searched, um, it's, it's, they're, they're less likely to be arrested, detained. Um, so that, yeah, they conceal drugs and large quantities of cash inside their bodies, either rectally or vaginally. And this is known as plug-in. That is incredibly dangerous. Um, it can cause injury could cause death if they're concealing drugs and, and something goes wrong um but it's also you know the fact that they're being violated in that way and they're experiencing that violation um in the case of child sexual exploitation which can go in hand hands in hands with child criminal exploitation um there's obviously the, the sexual abuse and assault and there's not only the, the physical harms of that but also the impact on their mental health and well-being and the trauma of that. Um, and also, you know, then you've got children and young people that might be miles away from home. They're trafficking drugs outside of the area that they live in. Um, they could be involved in a process called cuckooing. So what that means is that they are living in really squalid conditions in um, a house or a flat or a premises that belongs to somebody else, which they are, uh, and, and often the person that owns that premises is equally as vulnerable, but they find themselves living in these really squalid conditions um, for the purposes of dealing drugs. And they're not able to leave. And they might not eat, they might not shower, they might not sleep. So yeah, the, the conditions that young people find themselves in that are being exploited are horrific and incredibly dangerous. How, how is it possible to spot the signs then? I think spotting the signs of exploitation and abuse, we talk about that quite a lot, you know, everybody needs to spot the signs and be aware of what the signs are. But I often think that spotting the signs of exploitation and abuse is not always easy. Um, so, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier about adolescence and independence, um, and spending less time with parents and carers often co-occurs with puberty and therefore it's not uncommon to see changes um, in adolescent behaviour such as moodiness, tearfulness, low spells, withdrawn children, 
that have become quite reluctant to tell you about what's going on in their lives. And um, that, that can be typical, normal teen, adolescent behaviour. Um, it can also be a sign of exploitation. And that's what's difficult to unpick. Is this normal kind of prepubescent behaviour? Um, or is this something else? So I think that what we need to do is just be curious and be really professionally curious and not just discount that behaviour as, oh, it's, just, it's just an age thing, you know, they're a teenager. We need to be really drilling down, asking the questions and just being really alert to the signs. So, you know, um, there's lots of different signs of exploitation. So like I've just touched on there, changes in mood, sudden changes in mood, um, becoming withdrawn, spending more time away from the family home, maybe adopting a new peer network, maybe being associated or spotted with um, peers who are considerably older um, or adults, um, or just with peers actually where there might be that power imbalance. It just seems to be something off with that relationship. You know, you can maybe spot that there's signs of manipulation and coercion there. Another sign of exploitation might actually be something a little bit more explicit, and that could be something like the phone that the young person has. So, you know, with, with young people, and I'm thinking about my eldest son as well, the, the phone that they have is really important to them. You know, they want the latest Apple or whatever. Um, so if you see a young person who is using or in possession of like a really old Nokia. That for me would strike me as being unusual because a lot of young people, they wouldn't be seen dead with, you know, like an old burner phone or whatever. Um, so yeah, that, that's sometimes a sign of why have they got that phone? Why have they got multiple phones in their possession? What are they doing with that phone? That can be one of the most explicit signs of them being involved in criminal exploitation. Um, also, if you've got a young person who you know is from an environment where they are financially disadvantaged and then all of a sudden they're wearing designer clothes or they're being seen in nice cars, um, they're wearing the latest trainers, that also can be um, an indicator that they're being exploited in some way, that they're being given those goods in exchange for being involved in, in criminality and trafficking. Um, so I think the identification of sexual exploitation is often less overt and can be less subtle. Um, and again, I think that, that really comes back to those changes in behaviour, deterioration of mental health, maybe self-harm. They can all be indicators of trauma um, and that trauma might be associated with exploitation. Mm. Yeah, I see. So, um, so, go on. No, I was just going to say, because, you know, like uh, around the time of adolescence, the brain is, is, is developing and um, the brain's developing around that time, particularly in the field of consequential thinking. And I think this is a time where risk is really a factor because it, it's a time really where risk and consequence isn't fully understood. And, you know, I think that, 
you know, I think you alluded to this earlier, that young people might be attracted to the quick gains of exploitation, particularly if financial deprivation is a factor for them, um, but not being fully aware of the risk and the consequences of what they're in, involved in. How would you, how would you say well, from your experience, um, other ways young people communicate their feelings? Yeah, I mean, what, what I would say for everybody to keep in mind is that we need to remember that all behaviour is communication. And that often children, young people, they might not explicitly tell professionals or adults what's happening to them. And, and the reasons for that are varied. It might be because they're worried about getting into trouble. Um, they might worry that they might not be believed. Or like I said earlier, they might be really worried about fear of, reprisals what would happen to them if they do speak out and not just to them but their siblings to their friends to their family to the people that are important to them and so often they will communicate and express their feelings in other ways um you know they might kick off at school they might um show aggression and this might lead to them being either temporarily or permanently excluded from schools their placements, if they're fostered, for example, might break down. Their family relationships and dynamics might break down. And that, the, the risk of that is that the propensity for exploitation is even greater. You know, we need to remember that exploitation, if we don't intervene early, the impact of it isn't just going to impact on their childhood. The likelihood is, is that that will impact across their whole life course. And so it is really incumbent on all of us. And like I said at the start of this podcast, not just those professionals working in the field of safeguarding, it's incumbent on absolutely everybody to spot the signs, understand vulnerability and risk factors, um, and, and recognise how young people might communicate their experiences. You know, is a young person going to sit down to a teacher and say, I'm being exploited? Um, this is what's happening to me. No, it's not. So when we're seeing those behaviours, I think it's about really unpicking what is the cause, what's going on, and thinking about you know those trauma-informed responses. So speaking to a young person in an environment such as a classroom, what's that going to achieve? It might be identifying a space where they're more likely to open up and feel safe. Um, so yeah, I think... Behaviour, communication, what they're trying to tell you, but they can't tell you. That's, that's definitely true, I believe that. Um, I'm just thinking for, for those who may think that this isn't, it's not their place to say anything, or they might feel that it's not their problem, so they shouldn't yeah. feel they don't need to do anything. What, would, what advice would you give to those people? Yeah, you know what, I'd absolutely challenge anyone who says that this is not their problem. This, this is happening to children um, every day in every town, city, community. It's a real mistake to consider and think that exploitation only impacts on children and young people who come from fractured or dysfunctional families. You know, we're hearing more cases of children and young people who are being exploited who are from affluent backgrounds and may not have ever been known to services where there's no alarm bells previously been been wrong or any 
any concerns have previously been raised. Um, and, and I think that this is something, you know, which is more likely to be common as, as a consequence of the pandemic and of COVID. You know, you've, you've got more children who spend more time at home, in lockdown, online. Um, and what we know is that online is a space where grooming is really prevalent. You know, and then you've got, I think you've got some people who might say, well, I've not got children. So it, it doesn't impact on me. It's not going to impact on my kids. I don't work with children. Um, I haven't got my own children. But, you know, we, we need to remember that the exploitation and the links to criminality causes significant harm to communities in the form of antisocial behaviour. And then we've only got to think about the issues that are associated with drug misuse to recognise how that impacts on communities and also the financial impacts of exploitation and trafficking and the impact on our, on our economy is absolutely huge. So it is a problem that impacts on every single person. Um, mm. So yeah, I would challenge it in short. But, but Nikki, uh, people, people have got a choice. I mean, we can spot the signs in that, but, but everyone has a choice. So how, how for that argument, what would you say to those people? Yeah, and you know what? I think that, and, and I'm going off on a tangent now, but probably by saying this, but I think the media play a huge role in, in really sort of that belief that everyone has a choice and that they make, these children make a choice, that they're attracted to criminality, it's glamorous, it's lucrative, and they know the risks. And But it's going back to my point, really, what I said about how can they make an informed choice? Because they might know that they will be trafficking drugs. They might know that that's illegal. They might not know that they can't leave that situation at any point. They might not know that if they try to leave that situation, that they are going to be subject to significant physical um, and sexual abuse. Um, in the case of, you know, child sexual exploitation, they might start by believing that they are being loved and cared for and might not know that the expectation will be that they will go and be forced and coerced to have sex with multiple men um, for, for money. Um, so I would say that whilst it might appear outwardly that young people have affiliated themselves and uh, with gangs and criminality of their own volition I would say you know if if they wanted to walk away from that could they how can you make that informed choice and have that informed consent give that informed consent if you're not aware of all the facts and also I think it's about maturity have they got the capacity and the maturity to start to identify and decide if the risks of that lifestyle and their involvement with certain people outweigh the benefits? So, yeah, I would say, where's the choice? Where is the free will? Mm. And again, it comes back to really understanding that manipulation, coercion and control. We've already spoke a bit about it um, already, but why do you think, so many young people are lured into living a criminal lifestyle? I think it's, 
multifactorial, you know, there's numerous portion pull factors. Um, when we talk about when we talk about exploitation and you work in the field that I work in, you talk about push pull factors a lot, but there are a lot of factors that can entice a young person into a criminal lifestyle. And we've touched on economic deprivation. Um, but you know what? I think bullying is also a factor and something that is quite commonly experienced by children and young people. Um, so often what you find is that young people might align themselves with the very people that put them at risk because that gives them this sense of safety. Um, I know I've touched on this as well, that some young people might feel a sense of purpose by belonging to um, a certain network or peer group. But I think there's also um, you know, some glamorisation of criminal lifestyles and I think that this is really influenced by music and popular culture, which makes criminal lifestyles and even as risky as they are, look really appealing and glamorous. Um, and it isn't often until a young person experiences the dark underbelly of this that they recognise the harsh reality of, of it and how difficult it is to escape. So how does one get out then? I think this is a huge challenge, actually, to be honest. I think that when a young person is entrenched for a, no a number of different reasons, it's really, really hard. Not impossible, though, to, to get them away from the lifestyle that they've found themselves in and the situations that they've, they've been coerced into. So I think really the key is to prevent young people from getting to that stage. And the key to that is education and early intervention and prevention. So recognising the factors that we've talked about that increase risk, having those conversations early is vital. And I'm really, really passionate about that. So I think that having an assembly about exploitation in year 10 is absolutely pointless. You know, as part of PSHE, you need to be having those conversations earlier because what we're seeing is that children as young as seven are being exploited and trafficked. And therefore, when do we have those conversations? I think if we wait until they are in senior school, we're missing the boat for two reasons, really, because by that time, a lot of young people are lost to it and already entrenched in it. I think also um, because a lot of those young people who are at risk, they're probably not gonna be in school in year 10 because they're excluded. They might be in pupil referral units, alternative education provision. They might be um, home educated because school is just not a place for them for whatever reason. Um, you know, their school has not been able to meet their needs, which has left them vulnerable to exploitation. So they're missing that message. So for me, we need to be really proactive and we need to not only be for that very reason, not only be focused on the messages through school, but also um, upskilling parents to have those conversations and spot signs, to be looking at our communities and the role that they play, you know, our community and faith leaders to spot the signs and to proactively intervene. We need to be, I think, commissioning bespoke specialist services which support children at the lower end of the spectrum who are at risk. Um, and on the periphery of involvement of gang violence, um, sorry, gang, gang activity and youth violence. 
and to make sure that these services can support those as well at the other end of the spectrum who want to leave those really risky situations but just can't see a way out um because you know the psychological bonds are strong and that's all because of coercion and manipulation and so for me moving a young person who is really entrenched in exploitation out of area isn't the answer we need to be thinking more creatively than that and thinking about how we can build those support systems to enable those young people who are entrenched to, to safely leave those situations and leave those gangs that they are involved with and give them the confidence to be able to do that. I agree. So summing up then, for, for the consequences of not spotting the signs and, and not um, intervening appropriate, whether that's reporting, um, if, if they report an incident, if they don't, um, so I'm messing my words up now, the consequences of not spotting the signs, um, yeah. in your experience, how would you, how would you sum that up? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the main consequence of not spotting the signs early is that we are enabling groomers and organised gangs and networks to rob young people of their innocence and their freedoms and you know, like, like I touched on earlier, the impact of exploitation and child exploitation isn't just about the impact on their health and their well-being in childhood. The impact is likely to be felt across their life course. Young people who are exploited, they're much more likely to be criminalised. They are much more likely to experience um, poor mental health and trauma, um, self-harm, suicide, suicide ideation, if they can't see a way out of the situation that they're in. Um, yeah, and, and, and death, we've seen that. We've, we've seen that all too frequently, that young people who have been exploited have sadly lost their lives as a result of youth violence. So it's so important that we are all thinking about exploitation and thinking about the signs, recognising the signs. And if we spot it, that we say it. So you're saying then, no matter how small, um, it must be reported? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and this is something that I bang on about quite a lot because, you know, like... Um, I remember um, just not talking about professionally now, but talking about a friend who said to me that a house over the road, over the road, they'd been, um, the, you know, the police had been around and that there'd been um, drug dealing going on from that house. And she says, you know what? I, I knew that there was something going on. There was people coming and going from that house all the time. And I just thought it was off. And some of the people that were coming and going were, were just kids. And so she'd spotted the signs, but for whatever reason, she didn't um, inform the police. And I think that part of the reason why she didn't is because she just thought, oh, it's probably nothing. It's, you know, the police are busy. They're probably going to think I'm some busybody. But actually, 
her observations of what was going on could have been the final piece of the jigsaw puzzle that the police needed to put that operation together and to um, you know, intercept what was going on in that um, environment. So yeah, I would, I would definitely say, Ashley, that no matter how insignificant, how small that piece of information is, if you see it and it feels wrong, report it. It, from what I understand as well, you can also report anonymously. Um, yeah, so, yeah, definitely. So you've got Crime Stoppers. That's a way to be able to report things anonymously. Um, and young people can also report um, to Fearless, and I don't know if you've heard of Fearless. Um, Fearless is basically like the, the, the like a version of Crime Stoppers, but for young people. Because that is a big factor for young people if they see something, if they know something, they like if their friend has told them something that they're carrying that information around, they don't know who to tell, they're fearful to tell anybody about it, um, which is completely understandable, particularly if they know of somebody that has been threatened um, or injured, you know, beaten up in some way. Um, so fearless is is great, and it's a way that young people can share that information, um, no matter how small or insignificant it might seem. But if they've got any worries, any concerns, they can use it in the same ways that you would use Crime Stoppers. Is um is there a um a successful um formula for making an impression on a young person when it's, when a situation arises? I, yeah. Or should I rephrase it? I'll rephrase that. Um, is, there, is there a formula for making a successful impression on a young person who is involved, um, who is involved in criminal activity, they're being exploited? Um, how would you go about that if an opportunity arose? Yeah, definitely. I think I think that's a really good question. I think it's really important that regardless of what sector you work in, um, you you need to think about how you can have those reachable moments with young people. And it might be, you know, that those young people they're not they're not going to engage in an hour long session in um, a room where there's a table, two chairs. Um, that's just not going to work for them. And they're typically referred to as the hard to reach, difficult to engage. And I hate that phrase. I really do. I think that it's it's not about them being hard to reach and difficult to engage with. I think maybe it's actually that the way that we're trying to reach them and the way that we're trying to engage them just isn't working. Um, so for me, it's about looking for those reachable moments, um, which are really ad hoc, fleeting, unplanned opportunities to ask young people, how are you? Yeah, how are you? Do you feel safe? There's a, there's a few young people that I've come across um, who I've spoken with about their journey and their experiences. And, you know, they've had um, involvement, professional involvement um, and that support in place. They've had a lot of support on paper in place. And, you know, if you say to them, you, know, you had this person working with you that you could have spoken to. You had this person that was working with you that you could have spoken to. So what took you so long to speak?
speak out and ask for support. Mm. And what I find quite commonly is those young people will say, nobody asked me if I was safe. And if somebody had just asked me that question, do you feel safe? That might have been just the opportunity that they needed to say, well, actually, no, I don't. And this is why. So, you know, when I talk about those reachable moments, it could be um, not in a structured environment, not in a structured intervention session. So for a teacher, for example, walking down the corridor with a young person, just having that conversation and saying, you know, I've, I've noticed that you seem stressed at school. I've noticed that you seem worried about something. Do you feel safe? Because if you don't, you can talk to me. I think it's about as well, you know, touching on what I said earlier, that fear of getting into more trouble, that fear of being maybe criminalised because they know that what they're involved with is criminal um, and assuring them that they're actually a victim and that we recognise that they're a victim and that we can support them as a victim. Um, so, yeah, I think it's about seizing those ad hoc moments to check in recognising that behaviour is communication and not putting sanctions in place for that but putting those therapeutic responses in place and yeah just recognising that those formal structured interventions are not always going to work for these young people. That's great thank you thank you very much Nick I really appreciate um, you doing this podcast and I think a lot yeah, of people I think a lot of people listening will um, will take a lot from this. Thank you. No, great. Um, you know, I just hope that it really raises awareness of, of what's going on for too many children and people. And the, I suppose one thing that I hope comes from this is that people feel empowered, regardless of where they're working, um, what their role in society is, is. They feel empowered that they can make a difference, and they absolutely can make a difference. But if we're ever going to really wage a war on exploitation, we all need to play our bit and we all need to play a part in spotting the signs and intervening proactively. 100%. Um, as I understand, you, um, you've you got a new project set up called Safer Together. Do you want to tell, to tell the audience a bit about that, what you're doing? Yeah, so um, I'm the owner and founder of Safer Together and what Safer Together um does is provide independent consultancy and training on um, all things related to um, children's safeguarding because that's my background I've always worked in those fields um, and at the moment I have a um, contract with Coventry and will be CCG and public health to be their child exploitation project manager so this topic is so close to my heart and something that I'm incredibly passionate about um, you know, raising awareness, starting those conversations, having those difficult conversations, um, and ultimately supporting children, young people at all ends of the spectrum, whether they're on the periphery of, of exploitation or really entrenched. Um, so, yeah, in a nutshell, that's that's me. Brilliant. So, for those who work in, um, they might work in a different council or they might work in a sector or an organisation that could value from services that you provide. Um, is that something you could help with or do you, do you recommend um, any resources people can look to? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, in, in terms of resources, there's, I think there's a lot out there at the moment. Um, I am working quite closely with Dr. Grace Robinson, who is um, really doing a lot of pioneering research in the field of um, child exploitation um, and non-slavery with the Rights Lab at the University of Nottingham. And I would say that um, that that's really innovative work that is well worth being focused on. I think in terms of contextual safeguarding, which we talked about earlier as well, um, there's a brilliant book that's been written by Carleen Furman, who is the founder of Contextual Safeguarding, and I would recommend that as a really invaluable resource as well. Um, so, yeah, just hope that this and other podcasts which focus on similar topics and themes is really helpful at just raising awareness and, and getting people thinking about what they can do collectively to, to respond.